Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. It is always such a great day when I get to talk with my good buddy, Brandon, and really just share with you great conversations. And today we get to share another great one with you. Unfortunately, I wasn't be able to be a part of this conversation, but Brandon was able to have a great one. So I'm going to let Brandon introduce that to you and just really just tell us, you know, are you, are you having a great day like I am? You know, I'm having a good day. Uh, a little bit of tail end of uh, sickness. So apologies to our listeners if I sound a little different. There is two things going on. Uh, one, uh, I have been sick. And then two, I can't find my podcast mic. We just moved last week. And my uh, podcast mic is a casualty of the move. I don't know if it's in storage. I don't know if it's lost. But uh, other than that, feeling-wise, I feel okay. I feel oh, good. Right. Well, you know, Hang the other there. thing that folks, we were not on video, so you can't see this anymore. But his podcast, the microphone that he is using is a headphone mic, which may sound a little different. It definitely will. But more than that, it's like, I think it's caught in his beard somewhere. It's so I, I don't even know. Yeah, it, it might, you might hear some little crackling or something. Yes. That's likely his very long Rip Van Winkle beard that he has. But, but it's a that? beautiful thing. So who's Wait, so, who Van Winkle? Who, what? Rip Van Winkle, the old uh, nursery rhyme, the old guy who like sat by the tree and his beard kept growing. Oh. You got you to you you dig it up. You got to dig it up, check it out. I'd probably have to dig pretty deep. I you're not that, you're not that, that much younger than me. Come on. Oh, I don't think we want to start a, a check and <laughs> birth certificates around old. here, That's Phil. That's for sure. That's for sure. No, I, I, I was Grizzly Adams, you know, all that. I'm, I'm familiar. I'm actually, I, I did set up an appointment with the barber tomorrow, so it's got to come back mm. a little bit, but yes. Okay. Anyway. Microphone could anyway. get lost in the beard, but that's, that's just, you know, cost of it's doing business. It it's is a, a hazard of a hazard. business and the beard. It is a hazard. So, but anyways, yeah, uh, doing okay otherwise. And we do have a great uh, uh, show today, uh, a, a really interesting conversation. So uh, we were able to talk with uh, author Brittany Salman about her uh, upcoming book, which we're going to be uh, talking about in the interview, of course, uh, talking about transracial adoption, uh, you know, how the church should be approaching that, um, how we can you know, it's, it's a sticky conversation, you know, uh, race can be a challenging conversation. Um, it can, um, you know, there's been a lot of division of course, and, and of course, as, as, uh, followers of Christ that are pursuing unity, um, you know, that, that should be our hope and our focus. Um, but there's a lot of different people, you know, in that conversation that we need to listen to. And, um, I would just really appreciate the chance to to talk with Brittany and hear about her family and, and their experience. And yeah, that's, that's who we got on today. Well, let's get to it. Well, Brittany Salomon, it is uh, wonderful to have you on the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, I was really intrigued when I saw uh, the scope of the book that you were writing and, and we'll get into why that's pertinent, you know, personally and professionally, as far as uh, all the conversations that we're having here on Think Orphan. Uh, but for those of um, our audience that maybe haven't yet uh, become familiar with you and your work and your family, uh, I would love if maybe you could just uh, take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience and yeah, tell us about who you are and where you're coming from. Sure. Yeah. So like you said, my name is Brittany. Um, I'm a wife. I've been married to my husband, Ben, for 12 years. We have four kids. I have twin daughters, Felicity and Noel, and then we have 
two sons, Jude and Zeke. Um, our twins are nine and Jude is six and Zeke is two. Um, and the boys joined our family through transracial adoption. Our girls we had biologically. And uh, I don't typically differentiate that, but when we do talk about adoption spaces. I know that people are curious. And so want to at least get that out there. Um, but I am a professor and a doctoral student and I'm a writer. And so I think I'm here mainly because I just released um, a book called It Takes More Than Love, and it's navigating the, complex, the complexities of cross-cultural adoption from a Christian perspective. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm very uh, interested in in your family, um, but also just in this great work that you've done. And well, where is it that you teach at? Um, so I, I teach on Liberty University Online in their School oh, okay. of Divinity um, and their Global Studies Department. So I teach cross-cultural communication and engagement. Oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, we love connecting with people that are, that are working in university as well. Um, both me and my co-host do the same. Um, so this is fun. So let's, I mean, I would love to jump right in. Um, you're, you, you just wrote this, uh, book on adoption. Um, you're an mm -hmm. adoptive parent. Um, how long ago was it that you kind of joined the adoption journey yourself? So we brought Jude, our, our first son home, a little over six years ago, but we actually started the adoption journey, I would say almost nine years ago. Our daughters were a surprise. Um, we were not actually planning on having children biologically. And so they were a fun surprise, but we were investigating um, adoption. Basically, we knew whenever we got married, um, I, had, I had been diagnosed with some health conditions where we thought it was pretty unlikely that I would have children biologically. And so we had, adoption had our, always been plan A for us. Um, and then the Lord brought children to our lives biologically and we were surprised. And so we, we kind of pushed it off after investigating for a couple of years. And, um, but we still felt very much so that the Lord had it, had brought us to that path for a reason and, um, felt called to build our family that way. That's so good. And, and undoubtedly, you know, as we do talk with adoptive parents and, um, we each, you know, have our own story and even more so our kids have their own stories. Um, so I, I'm sure we could kind of go on and on. You know, when we do talk about adoption, you know, as I was uh, getting into your book, uh, you, you don't, what would I say? You don't necessarily pull any punches or you, you kind of <laughs> are, are, are open to jumping right into the thick uh -huh. of it, which we, which we absolutely love. Um, you know, I just kind of want to say in the opening of your book, you kind of have what almost kind of seems a little audacious in some of these kind of Christian OVC and adoption spaces. Um, you know, in the opening of your book, you, you really talk about how you have a love hate relationship with adoption um, and how you are actually no longer comfortable even being, uh, you know, called a, an advocate for adoption or an adoption advocate. So can you kind of explain that dynamic a little bit for you and, and, and why it can be such a conflicting space? Sure. Well, you know, I think, Part of this is also the history of adoption in evangelical spaces. Um, we had a really strong push for adoption in, in Christian evangelical spaces in the early 2000s, which is not necessarily a wrong thing. However, a lot of the marketing surrounded, surrounding that, um, we use terms like adoption advocate and um, adoption is beautiful. And there's a lot of positive language. Um, and it's not necessarily wrong, but it wasn't the full story. And what happened is as I got into our adoption journey, and it really it hit me right off the bat, um, when I was in the hospital for the first time, our, our son was, um, we were adopted through, it's called domestic infant open transracial adoption, which basically means he was adopted in the US, 
Um, it was a transracial adoption. He's a different ethnicity. And we have an open adoption with his first family. Um, I quickly realized as we were celebrating and excited to meet our son, I mean, just overjoyed and thrilled and overwhelmed. At the same time, there was a woman who was right next to me who was about to leave this hospital without her son. And there was a son who's about to leave the hospital without his mom. And those tensions I felt so acutely in the hospital room where I was so overjoyed, but I was also so deeply grieved. And I didn't know what to do with it because I, I had never been told that that would happen. Um, that wasn't really back in the day when we were talking about the nuances of both joy and sorrow and adoption spaces. And so um, it, it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And as we even progress even further, as I heard, you know, our, our kids' first family stories and different things, I quickly realized I had been so focused on the beautiful aspect of a child having and gaining a safe and loving home, which is a good thing that we celebrate. Um, however, there's this whole other side of loss and trauma and family separation and a birth mom who goes back to her family, whether she's single, whether she's married, whether she has kids, other bio kids in her family. And we were neglecting to deal with some of those issues. And so it, it just kind of, it's one of those things where I've learned and as I've grown is, yes, I love adoption. I'm so grateful for adoption in the sense of that we have two sons that I love deeply and I'm grateful. It's such an honor and privilege to be their mom, but I can't neglect the other side of it that they lost their first families. They lost having parents who reflect their ethnicity and their first culture. Um, they've lost a lot and, and that's a hard thing to deal with. Yeah. And, and it kind of raises the question. So, um, and, and as I had shared with you and as our audience already knows, I'm an adoptive parent as well. Um, we adopted in Tanzania. We were missionaries there for several years. So we actually did a domestic adoption in Tanzania. And as you might consider, all of the Tanzanian children are African. So I, so my son does not necessarily look like me. I'm, uh, you know, he's from the Pare tribe in northern Tanzania, and I am a German Scandinavian blooded American, you know. Um, so, so there's that, you know, but after I left that work, you know, we talk about advocacy. Um, after I left that, uh, you know, after eight years in Tanzania, I came back and I worked in child welfare in California. And I worked in the foster care unit of a foster family agency there on the central coast of California. And one of the things that I did during that year was do recruitment, um, basically going to a, a lot of churches and then other kind of, it was, it was not a faith-based organization, but there are a lot of kind of faith ties within that agency. So I worked a lot with churches and then of course, other community groups as well um, to go out and to recruit you know, foster parents, adoptive parents, you know, we kind of needed both, you know, to be honest. Um, and at the same time, you know, recognizing the struggles as an adoptive parent, even the struggles for my son as an adoptee, um, it became kind of conflicting for me, you know, in the long run as we were, you know, having various challenges ourselves, where I had to start even asking, is it even ethical for me to be recruiting, you know, uh, for people to take in kids, you know, that are in hard places, right? Um, yeah. So I would just kind of, when we talk about advocacy, we talk about in, uh, onboarding people, engaging people, you know, recruiting people, whatever. What are, what are your thoughts on kind of the ethics of that whole dynamic? 
It's tricky. And again, it's one of those things where I think in adoption spaces and foster care spaces, we have to hold, we have to, there has to be space for nuance. I think a lot of just like, um, it's, it's easy to, it's easy to pick a side. Honestly, I could probably argue either side right now and say, well, I could do this or I could do this. Um, and you could make a case for either, for both, whether it's ethical or unethical. Um, but more importantly, I think the question is like, there are systems and there are things going on in our culture right now um, surrounding family separation. And whether we're talking about recruitment, um, I think we need to have ethical practices in recruitment, which involves um, educating and equipping families and not just kind of the blind onboarding of adoption is beautiful, every child deserves a safe and loving home. Because again, these are not untrue statements, they're just not fully true. Um, so I think we need ed ethical education and ethical training in our recruitment in order for that to be a, a, a healthy thing. At the same time, I think another aspect that would be incredibly helpful would be to have a broader, more nuanced approach when it comes to um, family preservation and for caring for children who are separated um, from their families, whether it's via the government or whether it's because a woman has chosen to place a child for adoption. But I think we have to have some holy imagination and a little bit of creativity. I feel like sometimes we've been having the same conversation over and over in the adoption space, and we're doing the same things, but trying to do it more ethically or um, kind of, you know, same thing, but slap a new name on it with a few, some more training. And what I think we're, is going to be required is some holy imagination, and creativity and going, okay, what can we do within the system to kind of figure out what's the source of these issues and how do we stop it there while still also, yeah, having families equipped and ready to care for children who truly do need safe and loving families, because that, that's a reality. We can't neglect that. Our foster care systems right now, especially where I'm living, we have such a huge need for families to yeah. step into that gap. But in order to do so, we're going to have to have hearts and minds that aren't just bent towards growing our family, but for serving others. Yeah, no, really well said. And, and we see that, uh, that squeeze in pretty much every state that, that I'm familiar yeah. with. I saw that in California uh, for certain. I see it here in Washington state as well. Um, and I appreciate the way that you kind of hold those two things in tension. And, and there is a lot of nuance in this space. You know, and, I, and one of the things that we're really passionate about here on, on the Think Orphan podcast is actually hearing from adoptees and care leavers. In fact, the uh, episode that precedes this one was with Tori Hope Peterson, who is a former yes. foster youth. Tori's great. Um, had an amazing time with her. She's, she's fantastic. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really important to us. And, and, and clearly from your book, it's important to you as well. So throughout your book, you know, you include the writing of adoptees. Um, yeah. Why was it important for you personally to kind of bring in those voices for this book? I think it's incredibly important for anybody, but especially um, adoptive parents, that we are in tune and listening to the voices of adult adoptees. I, I can't think of a more valuable voice um, to honor, to make space for, to listen to, um, because really, I mean, our children who are young right now in, in my home, they're going to be adult adoptees one day. Um, and so when an adult adoptee gives us the gift of their perspective, um, my hope and prayer is that adoptive parents will take the time to listen and reflect. And even if our situations are incredibly different, you know, there are some, some adoptees, 
you know, we're, I'm listening to transracial adoptees who are adopted from other countries. And our, our boys were adopted here in the U.S. Their perspective is still valuable and I can still learn from them, even though it's not the exact same adoption scenario. And so um, for me, when I, I, the way this book came about, it wasn't that I was like, hey, I have this book idea. I really want to write it. Um, one of the acquisitions editor at Moody Publishing said, hey, Brittany, we'd work on writing in the, in the past on race and adoption, different things. And she said, I think you should write this book. Would you consider it? And when I was praying about it and thinking about it, I thought the only way I'm going to do this is if we can include adoptee voices, because I, I want to ensure that if this book is going to be, you know, for primarily adoptive parents in maybe church communities supporting adoptive parents, um, that they at least are introduced to adoptee voices so that maybe they can connect to them even more on their own after consuming this book. I know that's really good and, and, and brings in the balance and the, it fills in the gaps. Like that's anytime I talked with an adoptee, there's assumptions that I might have as an adoptive parent or as somebody that just works in this space. And man, you talk with somebody that has that lived experience, you know, um, it fills in all the gaps. It's, it's really, it's really so valuable. So I, I commend you for doing that, but, but at the same time, it wouldn't be a complete book without those voices. So that's really awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and kind of just kind of continuing on, I want to get into the transracial piece, which is really significant and obviously critical to, to the scope of your specific writing. Um, but to kind of just speak more broadly, um, you know, and, and there's undoubtedly some nuance here, but there is this kind of increasingly common phrase uh, swirling around that says adoption is trauma. I'm not sure if you've kind of heard that mm -hmm. um, working for um, a child welfare agency where we're mostly focused in the global south. Um, but, you know, we've come across any number of different people and uh, and each person has their own story. But there is this kind of common, I don't know what you call it, a soundbite, a clarion call or something that adoption is trauma. I just kind of want to throw that out to you. Do, do I mean, do you agree? Um, is that even a helpful frame? You know, is there any nuance, you know, with that kind of phrase, that kind of sentiment? Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that that phrase, again, was probably brought into light and as a response to two decades of ignoring trauma. So I do think that we need to acknowledge that. And I said that a lot of times it was adoption is beautiful. Adoption is beautiful, which is not the whole truth. And now we have somebody else shouting adoption is trauma, which is, again, not the whole truth. But adoption is birth from trauma. So it's, I would say adoption is birth from trauma. So our children and adoption can be trauma depending on how the parent um, parents as well, just like, you know, any sort of parenting, but adoption is birth from trauma. When a child is separated from their first family for whatever reason, that's traumatic, whether it's from birth, whether it's from toddler years, teenage years, um, when, a, when a child is separated from a family, that's traumatic. So adoption is birthed from trauma. Um, and I think, again, we have to, adoption can be traumatic in the sense of you take a child out of their family of origin or their country of origin, and you place them into a new family and a new culture. Um, and then you add the layer of transracial adoption where they don't look like them. Um, if it's international, maybe they don't speak the same language. Learning all of that, it's a traumatic experience. It can be a traumatic experience. Now that's not everyone's personal stories. And I'm not going to speak on behalf of adoptees. I think some adoptees would say, yeah, it was traumatic. And some would say, actually, that, that wasn't, my trauma happened beforehand. Um, and so I don't want to speak um, on their behalf. 
But what I do want to say for the adoptive parent is to realize that when you step into an adoption space and become an adoptive family, you are stepping into a space that was, that is created because of trauma. And we can't ignore that. Uh, It reminds me of something that Russell Moore leads out. And I know he was one of the people that had commented on your book. What what do they call that? Endorsements, right? He was one of your endorsements and Russell Moore, he's been on the podcast before. He's such a, such a, such a great leader, you know, in this space and Mm -hmm. adopted parent as well. Um, but it reminds me of something that he said towards the start of his book. And I don't agree with everything in Adopted for Life, but one of the things that he said was, um, oh, now I'm going to mess it up. But it, but it was very al- same along the lines of what you said is that before adoption takes place, there's always some sort of breakdown, some sort of yeah. like, like, the, like a tragedy basically always precedes adoption. Yes. And I think that when we kind of gloss over that and, and I appreciate, you know, what you're saying. And, and to really kind of even put it in those terms of marketing, um, because there is this component where um, this is a business. There is business implications yeah. here around adoption. Um, and the stories that we tell really matter. Um, you know, one of the one of my mentors in this space is Michelle Schneidler. She was my boss here at One Million Home for a while. Um, but she was a she was a she's an adoptive parent. She was an orphan care pastor up here in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, they said, hey, go and recruit, you know, foster parents. And when she went there, she just realized these people are falling apart. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. these families are falling apart. The kids aren't doing well. The parents aren't doing well. And that kind of birthed this whole movement of the Refresh Conference, which was just, we can't just do this whole like, you know, recruit them. Everything's going to be, you know, rainbows and butterflies and it's going to be beautiful. Um, it's hard on the family, it's hard on the kids, it's hard on the parents. Um, and we really need to do more to when somebody has said yes, how can we wrap around? How can we support and you know, get the kids connected, you know, help them to process their histories, help them to process the adoption itself. Um, so I really appreciate kind of the nuance that you bring there, Brittany. Um, you know, I do kind of want to jump in with this transracial piece. Now, um, obviously, you know within our country right now, within the US, um, race is a big topic. And yeah. it has been, to be honest, I mean, it's been a big topic since the inception of, you know, what's now known as the United States of America. Um, but in some ways feels even more elevated, you know, in the last few years. Um, and that certainly has um, implications for our adoptive families as well, and or just people of color in general, you know, and as well as, you know, the majority. Um, so, you know, in your book, um, you talk obviously about transracial adoption, you know, one of the things that you, that you mentioned there, I'm just going to quote you from your book is, uh, in your book, you say that parenting transracially doesn't come naturally, nor does it just happen with time. It is hard work. And yet it's been one of the greatest blessings in our family's life. So can you just kind of share with our audience, why is it so hard to parent transracially and and what your what has your family kind of learned within that space? You know, I think parenting in general, like I said, parenting's hard. <laughs> parenting oh, yeah. in general is You're hard. telling me. It's it's just <laughs> tough. And um, you know, I don't know. I think the majority of our parents or our, my friends who are adoptive parents and just friends who are parents, we want to do a good job. Like nobody says, Hey, I want to have kids and I just want to completely just like I don't care, you know. Um, kind of wave her hands in the air and wipe, say, whatever happens, happens. I know very few parents are like that. Um, and so when it comes to adopt, adoption and parenting transracially, it's the same thing. I know a ton of adoptive parents out there are like, how do we do this? How do we do this right? 
And what we've learned on our journey, and this is our, our personal journey, is that it takes a lot of intentionality. Um, I was talking with a friend the other day about this, and I was like, on one hand, it's really easy in the sense that we get to choose where we spend our money. We get to choose where we spend our time. We get to choose who's at our dinner table, where our kids go to school, um, what sports teams and extracurriculars they're involved in. We make all of those decisions. But what happens is when we just make those decisions without any intentionality behind it, we're going to keep on doing the things that we've done throughout our lives. And when you have lived in monocultural spaces, and I'm specifically coming from the perspective of a white adoptive parent, um, when you are living a, a monocultural life and then you become a multicultural family, something has to change. If you are called to adoption um, and to adopt transracially specifically, um, and you become a multicultural family, you cannot live a monocultural life, which means you're going to have to intentionally make some decisions to shape your family in, you, in a unique way, um, whether it's through school, church, again, the places where you take your kids for extracurriculars. Um, you have to be intentional with where you're going, um, where you're living and doing your life. What doctors are you going to see? What lawyers are you hiring? You know, it, you can go down the list. It just takes a lot of intentionality. And really, you know, praise God for the internet. A lot of this stuff is just a quick Google search away of trying to figure out, all right, let's, we moved from um, North Carolina to Texas about six years ago. And when we moved here, I was like, all right, we have to choose from the beginning, you know, where we're going to school, what are these school districts like, um, what are the churches like in our area. And all of that was a quick Google search away. It took some time and intentionality, um, but a lot of the stuff you could find from the comfort of your home, um, your couch, which is amazing. Um, and so whenever parents are like, well, I don't know, how did you do that? I'm like, it's Google. I, I Googled a lot. <laughs> and then we went and tried things out. And sometimes we're like, eh, that didn't work. We're going to try something else. And that's okay. Um, but it's a journey, but it just takes intentionality and an awareness of, okay, we're a multicultural family. We can't live a monocultural life. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, that cultural piece is interesting. And just kind of want to put this to you. And it would just be interesting as you're talking. And I think about culture, um, uh, kind of a lot of stuff comes to mind. You know, I've lived cross-culturally. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, having lived in Tanzania for as long as I did, um, there were things that kind of from East African culture that we absolutely love and started to incorporate in our lives, which helps us. I mean, we, there's things that we say in Swahili around my, around my home that we couldn't say in English because it wouldn't even make sense. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, like there, there's so many things that are just so easily integrated when you have lived cross-culturally. Um, and at the same time, if, if for our family, and I always only kind of speak for myself, but I kind of want to hear, cause you talk about monoculture versus multicultural but I really kind of even am interested in just kind of like the culture of a family itself, right? Mm -hmm. So for us, if if you were, you know, um, if an American, you know, uh, a West Coaster like me was hanging out, like they would be pretty, you know, comfortable hanging out with our family. But then from time to time, we would do stuff that would be like, wait, what, where'd that come from? And it would be kind of like a little Tanzanian, right? But if we had, you know, we we're back in Moshi, you know, we had a Tanzanian family come over, we might do something and be like, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense because you live in Tanzania and that's what we do mm -hmm. here, you know, but then we would also do stuff that was just like, you know, other, right? Is yeah. that is that what you would consider multicultural, that kind of dynamic? Or is that just kind of like, look, we are our own family, we have our own history, and we've kind of created our own culture. Like, 
like you kind of see what I'm asking, like, like to what, to what degree is it, is it just like when you bring a kid in and they have their own history, their own tradition, their own kind of culture that they're coming from, to what degree does that just kind of blend, you know, or integrate, Mm -hmm. you know, with your own culture to kind of create a hybrid? I don't know. Do you, do you kind of see what I'm saying? Is, is this accurate or am I doing it wrong? Tell me, Brittany. (laughs) No, no, that's completely accurate. But I think when we're talking about specifically transracial adoptive families, um, what tends to happen and what we've heard and learned from adult adoptees is that they're placed within families, um, specifically, typically like Western Anglo families, white families, white American families who come from, you know, European, Western European um, backgrounds. And so they, they're typically only celebrating their, their culture. So when we say monoculture, um, it would be like, my husband and I, we're both from the South um, and we're both white. And it would be that we just were an adoptive family and we have different people, with different colors in it, but we're just going to keep on doing our own thing. We're, we're, we're white people. We're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep be, doing our Southern hospitality. And um, we're going to completely neglect and erase the ethnicities of our sons that they bring and the cultures that they bring. That's what I mean when I'm talking about a monocultural life. Now, I'm not erasing my culture. What we're doing is with our children, we're adding into our family. And so I'm, I'm still a white Southern American. Um, that, that's not changing. <laughs> However, and it doesn't have to. However, at the same time, um, one of our sons is an African-American. And so we are intentionally diversifying the books we read, um, diversifying our Christmas decorations. That was one of the things, our very first Christmas with him home, I was like, look at all these white like people on my Christmas tree or like, why are all of these ornaments and nativities a bunch of white folks? And so um, we intentionally diversified our Christmas decorations. Um, when we brought home our son, our second son, who's Native American and Hispanic, I'm learning how to cook Puerto Rican food now. You know, there's all different things that we're doing to incorporate pieces of their culture um, into our family culture. And so where we're not just saying, I'm not saying, hey, I'm Hispanic now. That That's not what's happening here um, because that I'm not culturally appropriating um, my son's ethnicities and cultures. But what we're saying is as a family unit, we still have the culture of our family. I'm still Southern and we love hospitality. And my, my husband and I bring our unique pers- personalities to our family. But while we're doing that, we're also including other cultures and and not just as a family, um, but we've done life in such a way where our community and the people who are inside our home are our different ethnicities and different cultures. So they're coming in and we're saying, hey, Mr. Dante, what did, how did you celebrate Christmas growing up? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm half Jamaican and this is what my family did. And, you know, we have Fabiola over here who's Mexican. And she says, my family does this. And, and so we're learning all these different pieces and we're our, we want our family to be one where not just our children, but the people in our community and in our friendships and our church are able to fully show up as who they are with their God-given ethnicity and culture, and then they can come fully to the table as who they are as, as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, then also representing their unique culture. I know. I, I really love the way you frame that. And, and to me, you know, what I think of is this takes intentionality. And if we just kind of assume that oh okay now we have an african-american child or or a child of native and puerto rican descent or i have an african child i have a you know and we just kind of assume that yeah it'll be everything will be fine 
they're going to lose even more, you know, than they yeah. may have already lost by leaving their culture of origin. Right. So yeah. um, just totally agree. It takes that intentionality and, and, uh, and, and the, and the thing is, and, and again, this is from somebody who has lived cross-culturally, it is so enriching, you know, for me mm. to not just, to not just look at it and say, um, well, but I'm a Californian. So Californian culture is just like, it's the best culture. It's Hollywood. It's surfing. It's, you know, whatever. I'm just being stereotypical, but, yeah. you know, but to make that assumption, um, you know, that, that this is the penultimate, you know, way to kind of live culture. I'm going to shortchange myself because I love East African culture. You've probably yeah. learned to love a lot about, you know, African-American culture and, and, and native culture and, you know, so, so I just, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's actually a blessing for us when we're actually intentional about incorporating and, and integrating, you know, those types of cultural practices, traditions, and, and so forth in our families. Yeah. Everyone talks about how hard it is, but I, I, I'm glad you brought up the beauty of it as well. Cause I'm like, it's a gift. Yeah, it's absolutely. Absolute gift. I'm so grateful that, that our holiday celebrations and our Sunday lunches after after church are with people who don't look and live like me. It's yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and and elsewhere in your book, you know, again, kind of going through this transracial, I, I just love some of these lines from your book. So I'm just going to read again uh, as our as our listeners get a feel for for your writing. Um, you you say if you're preparing to be an adoptive parent or if you're supporting an adoptive family. Your biggest, or you say, my biggest piece of advice is to take some time to pray, reflect, and wrestle with the racial biases that exist in your own heart. And if you truly don't believe that you have any, I still recommend taking the time to work through the anti-racism guide just as a refresher and for further learning. Uh, my guess is that at, at once you dive in, you might be surprised at what you find. Racial bias. Okay, that's, that's, that's a big one. That is a reality. Yeah. Um, yeah sometimes subconscious, sometimes not as subconscious. Can you kind of parse that out a little for, for our audience? Yeah, I will. And I, I want to start off with the perspective of, as a believer for me, um, I come from the perspective that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all are broken in a need of a savior, Jesus, at the foot of the cross, which to me is freeing. So it frees me up to say, I don't have to have every, I don't have to be perfect. Um, I do not have to come to this conversation with all the answers. Um, but at the same time, I think so often our culture has said, like, we've pushed this, like, racism is bad. Racism is bad. Only bad people are racist. Only bad people are racist. So then it got to a point where only people who are willing to use racial slurs are racist. And we know that that's just not true. All of us in some form or fashion are, um, have biases against people. Sometimes it comes out in gender. Sometimes it comes out in ethnicity. Um, sometimes it comes out in socioeconomic status. Um, but our biases and our stereotypes about groups of people, this has been ongoing since the beginning of time. And so it is naive uh, for me to come to the table going, well, I have adopted children. I don't have any racial biases. Or I, you know, have taken this class. And so on racism, so there's no way I can have racial biases. Rather, I think a better perspective is to say, is to assume we have blind spots. We have blind spots and we're working from stereotypes in some form or fashion. And so um, what I wanted to do in the book is to create a shame-free environment where people can say, actually, you know what? 
I actually do have some racial biases. And because that's when we can actually make progress. If we just deny them, um, pretend they don't exist, stuff them away, um, they're going to grow mutant into something ugly. Um, but if we can bring them into the light, we know there's freedom there. We can say, actually, I, I am dealing with this. I need to work through this. Um, that's great. And as adoptive parents, what a gift it is um, to our families and friends who are supporting us to bring them along in that journey. And in a, not a way that is, you know, littered with shame, but in a way that says, actually, I hope that this provides some conviction because conviction is where change happens. Shame is where, you know, you know, it, it, shame is a liar, um, but conviction can push us into um, spaces of redemption and restoration and beauty. And so uh, that, that was the purpose of that. And, and that chapter in general is wanting to invite people to really process some of this is do we have racial biases? Um, do we have some cultural biases or are, are we functioning from viewpoints where with stereotypes about certain people groups, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's, you know, race or any of those things. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and, you know, as uh, you mentioned the, um, what was it? Anti-racism guide. Is there one provided in your book for our listeners or is there one that we can link in the show notes? Because I think that that's a really interesting thing that most of us wouldn't even kind of think about. Yeah, I have some linked in the end notes of the book. Um, the ones for specifically for adoptive parents, I recommend is there's one by um, Be the Bridge oh, by Latasha yeah. Morrison. Yeah, she's great. She has, they have all sorts of guides. They have a transracial adoptive um, parent workbook that you can work through that also deals with some of that. But they also have anti-racism guides. There's also Latasha Morrison's book um, that is helpful. Um, there is an... There's another one. I should look it up. His name is escaping me. There's another. It's actually by an adult transracial adoptee. Um, and I, his name is escaping me, but I have it linked in there. He has also produced um, a, a transracial adoptee guide, but also an anti-racism guide specifically. Um, okay. And he is an, a transracial adoptee. And, um, but no, yeah, I'm sorry. That, yeah, his, no, his that's really good. And, and we can link some of these things yeah. in the show notes for our listeners if this is something that interests you and, and definitely seems like a, a worthwhile activity um, to do and to kind of start to uncover some of those. I mean, and as you encourage, you know, other people to do, you know, to kind of go through this exercise and start identifying some of those biases in this, you know, time of soul searching or whatever we want to call it, you know, what are people finding? And and even what might people be finding after they've adopted transracially as far as some of those biases that maybe to them were subconscious? You know, I, I've met a lot of people who have biases against um, birth families, which is, oh, you yeah, know. No, that's very, yeah, I see that like, all the time. <laughs> I mean, and, and then that's not necessarily we're talking about just, just race. Sure. Um, but you have, when you're working through some of these biases or racial biases, um, what I found is that a lot of these racial biases pop up whenever they're evaluating their relationship with their kid's first family. If you're thinking, oh, well, this culture does X, Y, Z, and you're mentioning a stereotype, um, I think that that's where a lot of those, you can see some of those tensions and racial biases um, pop up whenever you're evaluating your relationship or your experience or your assumptions about our children's first families, which is incredibly heartbreaking and dangerous. But also, if you're having those and you're aware of it, Praise God. Let's work through it. You know, again, like we want to call it wrong, but also we want to invite people into repentance and restoration. We have, we have to deal with those. Um, but in my experience in the adoption world, 
a lot of racial biases pop up when we can, when we start talking about some of the traumas and things that maybe initiated the first family separation. Yeah, no, that's uh, really, really helpful. And to me, it even sounds like, you know, there's some prep work, you know, and, mm -hmm. and um, I'm a firm believer in getting uh, families trained up and connected with one another and so forth, even before they start the adoption journey, right? Um, you know, and we kind of already talked a little bit about some of these, you know, practices and strategies, but, you know, what, what have you learned that, that help you incorporate culture for your adopted children and then kind of your family as a whole? Yeah. So, um, you know, racial representation, you know, is a, is a big thing. You're, you're going to see it. Re representation matters. That phrase it's all over the adoption community. It's also all over, um, just education spaces and things like that. There's a huge need for representation, um, in literature and all sorts of stuff. And our, and our family, we've kind of broken it down into three different spheres. Um, is, you know, the first is you want racial representation in the, the things in your home. We call them artifacts. The books in your home, the toys in your home, the Christmas decorations in your house. You know, you want your child to be represented in the artwork and in the culture of your home. Um, but also the next step that for us to incorporate that would be also the voices we listen to and specifically the people that, our children see my husband, his name has been Ben and I submitting to. So whether that's, and we can use that term loosely, but like a doctor, um, the lawyer, the um, home insurance salesman, like who are the people who we are, um, A, supporting financially and giving, you know, purchasing a service from, but then also listening to their expertise in her. Um, the podcast we listen to, the preachers who we listen to online, the sermons online, those sort of things are their voices heard um in that kind of second tier of representation but the thing that um we have found the most helpful um would be that third sphere or tier of representation um which is genuine community um with people genuine community and, and so i want to be really clear on that because sometimes adoptive parents will approach um um, people of color, um, specifically white adoptive parents will approach people of color of the match the ethnicity of their child. And they're like, hey, I have a child who maybe they're Asian American and they run into an Asian American person and they're like, would you want to like hang out and be a mentor for my kid? And I want to warn against tokenizing people um, and using people as tokens to serve your family. Um, and instead, what I want to encourage adoptive parents to do is to, again, like we talked about initially, is you get to choose where you do your life. You get to choose what church you go to, what schools your kids go to, the the um, sports teams that they're on. Are they on city leagues or are they on the private leagues? Um, and so doing life intentionally in a way where your life intersects with people who look and live differently from you and building a community that is truly multicultural. Um, from our perspective, when it comes to, you know, strategies and incorporating culture it's not been you do xyz it's hey you're no longer a monocultural family you need to live a multicultural life and if you do that and you have people in your home and people in your community people you're vacationing with um people that you're hanging out with and your kids see in your home and that you have genuine relationships with and you're not just using them um that is going to be the thing that i think is most valuable to your children it's going to be the thing that helps you truly incorporate true culture because you're going to be learning from friends, 
and people who are like family who can say, actually, Brittany, you should, have you tried this? Because this is what I did growing up or have you done this? Or, um, and so when you have those true and genuine relationships and you're truly living a multicultural life, um, I think that, that that's my biggest recommendation. You can do when it comes to the spheres one and two, that's a great first step. Um, but if you're not living that third tier, you're going to be falling short in some form or fashion. No, it's so good, Brittany, and 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 really practical as well. And and I'm a big uh, I'm a big believer in not just being tokenistic, like you said. Um, this has to be genuine. And and mm-hmm. one of the things, you know, that that last one, the representation is 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 critical. We want our kids to be able to see themselves and identify, you know, in the materials that they're engaging with or what's put up around the house or around the neighborhood or what have you. Um, And that's, you know, very feasible. Like that's something that like all of our listeners that are transracial adoptive parents could go out and like do tomorrow, right? And like, I'm going to go get new books, you know, kind of thing. Perfect. Great start. That community one is is kind of, I think, the most important. Uh, I mean, in my estimation, and yet I feel like so often we kind of uh, aren't really good at community in general, much yeah. less when we when we are uh, engaging people that are coming from other cultures. Um, and yet uh, I think that that's going to be ultimately what is most beneficial, uh, not only for our adoptee children, uh, adoptive children, but also uh, our families in general. So I. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brittany, this is this has been so good. Uh, just to remind our audience, the book is called "It Takes More Than Love: A Christian Guide to Navigating the Complexities of Cross-Cultural Adoption." Uh, the book is out now, um, and uh, and there's there's just a ton of really great practical as well as even theological pieces in there um, around what this looks like. So uh, this has been so much fun. Uh, Brittany, before we let you go, we have uh, two questions that we ask all of our um, all of our guests. Um, so uh, we we love. I mean, it's great to get authors on because we get to hear you know directly about a, a book that that's out. Um, but we also love just kind of stirring word of mouth for other things. So what have you read, watched, or listened to? It can't be your own book. And I know you wouldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children, um, as well as families even, with excellence? You know, this is going to sound really, um, it's, it's really easy because it's free. It's really easy and it's really free. But it's um, listening to adoptees on social media. Um, oh, okay. That. I mean, that sounds crazy, but you can go on Instagram right now and type in hashtag adoptee voices. And, and one of the things I, I, that is probably the thing that has shaped my thoughts the most. Um, and then a lot of them have resources. And so I've, I've gone and purchased their, their consultation, you know, and talk with them for an hour or they produce resources online and listening to adult adoptee voices. Um, that's, some basic low hanging fruit right there that I would say significantly changed the way um, I thought and learned and um, listened um, to voices and adopt different voices in adoption spaces. Cause my first, I will tell you, and probably like you, my first probably few years in adoption as I was only listening to the adoptive parent perspective. And so for me, I would say, listen to um, adoptive voices and birth mom voices. Um, I think Brave Love is an organization out there. They're on social media that you can follow um, that re- represents um, birth mom voices. Um, but then um, 
there, if you just typed in it, if you just did hashtag adoptee voices on Instagram, you'll find some, they might, you might not agree with them on everything. That's okay. I'd say tune in, listen, um, and just kind of receive their story as well. Um, another book would be, um, Rebecca Carroll, surviving the white gaze. Um, that was a book. It's memoir. She is from what I can tell, not a believer. Um, but she has, uh, it's her memoir of she's a journalist and she's, she's an adult transracial adoptee. And that was a, a great book that I read as well. Oh, that's really good. And we will uh, link those in the show notes. I, I will say, uh, Brittany, I think that's the first time where somebody answered, follow this hashtag on social. So, so kudos to you. <laughs> Sorry. Low hanging fruit from the professor. I love it. it, it it's free and easy. And, it's and a lot of them have books. So you can go, go purchase a book from there. there but you, go. you know, it was, it was the referral that we'll keep on referring. Uh, <laughs> really great. All right. So uh, on the more personal front, uh, hashtags and bush, books aside, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Um, honestly, it'd be my kids' um, birth moms. Yeah. Um, both of them, the, our, our, our first adoption, um, our son's birth mom, having an open relationship with them um, has completely changed my way of looking at them, looking at what brought her to choose adoption. And then the second one, our second son of adoption is the same thing. My relationship with our kids' first families, they're invaluable and they've changed me permanently um, to now not just be going, all right, how can we care for um, and make sure that every child has access to a safe and loving home? How can we care for women um, who are, you know, have found themselves with an unexpected pregnancy and are faced with some heartbreaking decisions. How do we care for them? Um, because I don't think we can have a, a conversation about orphan care without having conversations about their moms. Absolutely. No, uh, very well said. And, and that was not the first time somebody has said, talk to the birth families. And, and uh, I think that there's just so much to learn when we, mm-hmm. when we go to like, there's a history here. There's, there's, yeah. there's roots here. There's, there's stuff that we're going to learn and benefit from, and it's going to enrich us. It's going to enrich the, the first family. It's going to enrich our kids. So uh, well said. Well, uh, Brittany, it has been a, a pleasure and a delight to uh, have you on the Think Orphan podcast. Um, would just encourage our listeners to go check out It Takes More Than Love, available now on Amazon or Moody or wherever you want to grab that book. Mm-hmm. So Uh, Brittany, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, uh, Phil, I would love to get your thoughts. I mean, that was a pretty in-depth kind of uh, talk with uh, Brittany, and and she just had so much thoughtful and, and helpful things to kind of think through. And um, and again, there's a lot of different voices and perspectives and so forth, you know, when it comes to adoption, when it comes to race, when we put those two things together, you know, uh, it just makes it all the more nuanced of a conversation. So would love to just kind of hear, man, what, what did you think, you know, uh, listening to that conversation asynchronously, as we say? You know, it's, it's always interesting, like doing an interview versus listening to an interview. Cause you, I think you hear different things when you're, when you're doing that, but, um, one of the things that listening to it, there, there's a couple things that really stuck out to me. The first was something we talk about a lot on this show is the nuance. Like just that word nuance is a, is a cool word, first of all. But second of all, it's, it's really, you know, we talk about there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing. There's no one 
you know, magic bullet that you can get and it will solve all the problems. You know, it's, it's, it is nuanced. These are messy issues. These are difficult issues and transracial adoption, adoption itself, even as, you know, she talked about, I'm not an adoption advocate anymore. Obviously that was kind of a loaded term. She went into what that meant. Um, that was interesting, right? It's nuanced. It's not as simple as adoption is the answer. Well, it may or may not be. It could be, it could be a, actually a negative thing in a kid's life. If in fact there's all these other, if trafficking is involved, obviously it's a negative thing, right? If, if there, there's adoption disruptions, there's other, it's not simple, right? There's other things. Race, as she talked about, that's not simple. I mean, even, I guarantee there's people listening right now that, that when she talked about even some of the authors, some of the books, some of the different things, you know, the critical race theory, all these other things, I don't even think she mentioned that per se, but that's what it evokes right now. And that unfortunately causes division, not what it should in our society, which is, as we talked about, when we're talking about these things, the hope, especially as Christians, is that we have unity. Not that it causes an us versus them or an us and them, but that it, that it actually evokes a how can we do life together? How can we get to know each other? How can we be one? And what does that look like? And, and so there's a lot of, of things that we need to be talking about. And the hope is not that we feel guilty about being, you know, like you and I are both white. There's no secret about that. If anyone ever meets us, it's pretty darn clear. We're, you know, I'm about as pale as they come. Um, but I hope that when I talk with people of their different race, different culture, different whatever, that I don't have a guilt because of how God made me, right? But rather I say, how can we get to know each other so we can know how we can help each other to flourish, right? That's what this podcast is about. That's what it's always been about. I love the conversation I was able to have with, you know, Propaganda and Dwight Taylor, you know, both, both black men who are, are good friends, you know, and, and to be able to say, well, that might be an exaggeration. I'm not, I, I'm a good, Dwight's a good friend. Propaganda and I know each other. Um, but just even talking with them to be able to say, um, what does it look like, you know, from your perspective? I know from mine, I just want to get to know you better. I want to get to know my friends who come from different backgrounds better, whatever the color, whatever the religion, whatever. You know, the other day, I literally, I went to my local park and there's, there's dudes there from, from uh, India and Pakistan and Afghanistan and all these different places out there playing cricket. And I'm like, I want to go out and get to know them. So I start learning cricket. I'm watching documentary after documentary. I still don't totally get That's it. That's a tough one, man. But I, I know, know enough scoring. about it. It's yeah, weird, I know man. enough I about it, it <laughs> to get out there and have a conversation at least. And then I have the, the learning posture to be able to say, hey, can you teach me the game? I'd love to play with you guys, you know, if, if I'm welcome. And they're like, yeah, get out there and play. I'm like, well, not quite yet. Can you help me understand it? But that idea of what's a common ground how can we do life together? How can we share a table together and commune together? What does that look like? So that, anyway, I mean, there's so much to these conversations. We're not going to get to them, but I, what I don't want to happen is to have people shut it off because they hear a reference to a particular author or to a particular statement or to a particular word, you know, because I think some of these words have been hijacked by causes that don't have unity in mind. Mm. Unfortunately, and I think there's other people who are being silenced who do have unity in mind. But at the end of the day, what can we do? Not how can we get angry at this person or angry at that person or go to politics or go to this or that, but to be able to say, okay, how can we draw closer to unity, to unifying? How can we be unifiers? How can we not make it a guilt thing, but a get to that we get to do life together and that we get to have um, you know, hopefully help each other to flourish. So that's the one thing I just wanted to make clear yeah. because yeah. I don't want there to be confusion on that. 
Um, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, to me, when we talk about nuance, you know, one of the things that I uh, love about podcasting is that it's long form. <laughs> yes. So you can get into nuance more. You you know, fitting it into 280 characters or whatever, you know, social media thing. You know, I, I don't know when we talk about nuance, what the opposite of nuance would be. To me, though, it kind of seems like conflation would be the opposite. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's the actual opposite, but what I see is when you're saying we want to look at this from a nuanced perspective, what we're saying is we're going to recognize that there's a lot of perspectives, there's a lot of angles, there's a lot of um, uh, information, you know, that are all a part of this whole thing. And we're going to appreciate each of those different nuances for what they are. The opposite of that would be saying, oh, you said this word, that's a buzzword. I'm just going to conflate that with all of this, yes. you know, kind of right. thing. So one of the things that I, you know, have heard, you know, is, oh, if you talk about oppression, you know, and this is not, this is not what we're talking about with Brittany, but just because we are on the topic of race, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about oppression, then you're, then that's Marxist. And it's just like, well, that doesn't even make sense because oppression is something that scripture talks about. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. God, God delivered the Israelites out of oppression. You know, that's a, right. that's a biblical thing. So unfortunately, sometimes when there are these kind of buzzwords that can come from any different angle, perspective, you know, platform, whatever, and then those things just kind of become conflated, we lose the opportunity to learn. Um, And that's why it's great to actually have these, you know, wide ranging conversations around race and and adoption. Mm -hmm. And again, as Mm -hmm. I said in the intro, you know, when you put these two things together, that there are a lot of opinions and people don't always agree with each other. And there is nuance, right? And when yeah. we talk about adoption, my perspective on adoption is a lot different than it was before I became an adoptive parent, right? <laughs> right, right. So right. Um, I've learned a lot of nuance even in that. Um, yeah. And uh, and my son, you know, who we adopted, undoubtedly has a different perspective than I do. Yep. So when we talk about nuance, what we're saying is that there's going to be room for both of us to kind of express. Uh, both of us to even lament or repent, you know, in areas that we didn't see well or that we didn't act well. Um, And uh, for both of those things to actually fit within the same thing as we hopefully move towards unity. So um, I think I think nuances is uh, something that unfortunately we lack too much when we're just kind of addicted to headlines and short social media blurbs. and because of that, we allow it to divide ourselves on any number of topics. That's right. right? So, and we don't enter in to conversations when we feel people are saying, like you know, you, even when you said oppression. Again, I, I bet people were like, "Oh my gosh, Brandon's critical race theory guy." You know, it's like, <laughs> no. I mean, I know you well enough, right? Like that because that it simplifies it. It oversimplifies it. Sure. So I think when you nuance, maybe oversimplification would be another one too, right? And that's part of that issue is we don't define our terms. We don't take the time. And that's something we talk a lot about on this show, right? We don't take the time to go, okay, you said that word. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Because if you're saying to me, you know, like some have said, because you're a white male, you're an oppressor, you oppress people. I'd, I'd say, you don't know me. You have no idea. You can't just lump into all white people that have ever existed the same thing. Same thing you can't do with all black people who've ever existed or all anybody that's ever existed. You can't do that, right? So that's where that nuance comes in is, is it is a case by case. Same way we want to say with every kid out there in the world to say, we can't just say, this is how you take care of kids. Sure. No, you can't do that. You got to go, okay, this kid, 
What, what, did they, what does he or she need in this moment, in this place, in this family, in, out, of this, out of a family? Whatever it is, we got to know their story to be able to actually understand how we can come into that. So that's something that we talked about. And then, so I, I also just want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, your story, right? Like, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about it just there, but I remember, I mean, I remember back to Tara Vanderwood, you know, I don't know what it is about like, you know, the, the, the people who we've had on talking about, you know, transracial adoption, but just, just passionate advocates, you know, fire, like Tara is one of my favorite people, man. She's awesome. She's just a fire, you know, fireball, man. She's coming at you. And both of them, both Brittany and Tara talked about adult adoptees, right? Like they talked about that voice that we don't get enough. I know Tara, uh, Michael and, um, uh, Kristen, Kristen Berry. Um, thank you. Um, uh, in their book also had a whole chapter on adult adoptees. So that voice that, you know, Tara would, you know, she will come up to me anytime I'll listen saying, how can we don't have more adult adoptees? How can we don't have more adult, adult adoptees at CAFO and think orphan on everything else? And, you know, and I think part of the, part of the reason is it's hard to get people. A lot of people don't, a lot of adult adoptees don't want to talk. Mm. It, it, you know, a lot of them don't, and we do have some, yeah. but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that whole conversation. I think it's absolutely critical to get more voices sure. that are actually first hand um, experiences. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that, uh, you have, you have a lot of thoughts on that. So I just want to come to you and just hear your thoughts on that. Well, even just, you know, to Tara's point, which I agree with, and that is a great uh, episode. Um, if people want to go back and listen, I thought she was fantastic. You know, as far as having voices, you know, hopefully, you know, people would have heard the podcast directly before this, where we talk with, uh, Tara Hope Peterson, Mm -hmm. you know, who's an adult adoptee and also an adoptive mother. Right. <laughs> so with her, she, um, you know, she has that lived experience. And even aside, you know, when we talk about global orphan care, I thought our conversation towards the start of this season with Sunette Chan and Grace and Jerry, mm-hmm. honestly, I mean, that's the, that's the best podcast we've ever yeah. done. I, I don't yeah. know what else to say. Like, not just that I've been a part of, but even all the seasons before. So, I mean, to me. Um, so that, that, I would say, has been something that we do want to emphasize and we want more of. And I appreciated that Brittany included that within her book as well. Um, You know, and on the front of adoption and even transracial adoption, you know, it's interesting because we adopted our son um, domestically uh, in Tanzania. So people are like, oh, you internationally adopted. No, we actually didn't. Uh, We adopted Mm -hmm. as long-term residents of Tanzania. And uh, for, you know, most of, uh, now it's getting about half and half. We spent the first few years in Tanzania where he continued to kind of be a part of the majority there, right? Which is obviously Tanzanians. Um, And uh, then we spent the last three years back here on the West Coast where Melissa and I are from. And now he's the minority, you know. Mm -hmm. So on the race front, it has been has been interesting. Um, And there is loss there. Like there's absolutely loss. For him, yeah, you yeah. know, um, there's loss for all of us, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for for us, and obviously, I'm being subjective, but when we realize otherwise, he would have remained in an orphanage and re- and separated from any semblance of family. That was not a better option than us adopting him. But that doesn't mean that there isn't loss in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it has been a challenge, and um, it's been a challenge 
you know, for us being white people in Tanzania, um, that's almost kind of, um, there is some kind of like, a, there, there is some marginalization, but it's not marginalization like you're down here. It's more just kind of like you're different. We recognize you're different, but you still have kind of an esteem. Um, and I don't know if that's just because of, you know, past colonialism or the, the financial dynamic. You know, we've read kind of some of those cross-cultural things when Americans live abroad and all of that. So you can kind of imagine what our experience was being a minority there. Um, but my son fit right in, right? Um, because he was speaking Swahili and he's, you know, from yep. the Pare tribe and all of that. Now it's kind of the reverse. We put him into a public school in California when we first moved back and he was one of two, you know, uh, black kids at his school. Yeah. And uh, the other kid was also an adoptee from East Africa, <laughs> interestingly. <laughs> so um, at any rate, uh, it, was, uh, it was a big shift for him, you know, and having white parents. Like, yeah. there's certain things where it's hard for us, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes mm -hmm. to even things as far as like hygiene and hair and like those types of things. So there is loss there. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's been our experience. Now, our son, he's a wonderful young man. Um, he's a teenager, so, you know, we get all the joys of just raising a teenager in general. Um, but it, um, it's a challenge, you know, for all of us. And I have, um, I'm not going to bear my heart on the podcast necessarily, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a lot that we've learned, you know, as adoptive parents and then also raising a child um, that is a different race than us. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot in there. And if, and if any of our listeners ever want to hear more, please just reach out to me personally. I would be glad to share more, but um, it's been uh, a, a learning experience and hopefully that's what we're all on. Absolutely. You know, and that's kind of the idea. And, you know, I, I said early on and I, I did another podcast on a leadership podcast and the guy said like, what's one, piece of advice that you would give, you want to give everybody. And I'd say, you know, it's listen to and learn from people that you know you'll disagree with going in because it allows you to actually understand people. It, it creates more empathy. It creates more understanding for viewpoints that, that, you know, again, you know, you're going to disagree with it. So what I hope you do when you, when you know that and you have that preconceived notion is you listen for things that you actually agree with. Because then that will actually cause you to realize, oh my gosh, like even people that I know I'm going to disagree with because they are fundamental different worldview than I do, I still agree with them on things. Mm -hmm. So we can still do life together. We can yeah. still, you know, connect on those things, whatever they are. And then, you know, you never know what will go from, what will happen from there. But if you never open yourself up to listening to things, then you're not going to learn anything. You're just going right. to, you know, it's. It goes back to, you know, scripture, they're talking about, you know, if you just love people who love you, you know, what good is that? Even the Pharisees do that, right? But how do you open yourself up to love your enemies? Well, right. you got to get to know your enemies, first of all. And then, yeah. you know, what you might find out is they're not your enemies. Right. It's kind of a crazy concept, right? So, um, well, and anyway. I think it just kind of, and Jonathan Haidt talks about this. I know this is something that you've mm -hmm. read and, and I, I have a lot of respect for him and, and mm -hmm. his writing. You know, but one of the things that he, I think he's actually quoting somebody else, but we talk about like when you draw a line, you know, you can draw a line in the sand to kind of separate people and kind of, you know, as he talks about in uh, Coddling of the American Mind, you know, um, one of the fallacies is an us versus them mentality, right? Yeah. We can draw a line in the sand that says you're over here and I'm over, like I'm over here and you're over there kind of thing and we're separate and we're different, we're on opposite sides. 
or you can, you know, draw a circle, you know, draw a bigger circle to try to fit everybody in, you know, mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be monolithic or everybody's mm -hmm. going to be the same, but it means that from, um, with people that can be very different from you, you know, different political views, different views on social things, different views on any number of things. We should be people that are pursuing unity. I mean, that's literally why Christ sent his spirit. So, um, you know, it's the spirit of unity, right? That's, that's a core function of the Holy Spirit. So yeah. um, we should be people that are drawing circles to say it's us, you know, and we're going to talk about the differences and the nuances. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really critical. Now, I think it's critical too to, to just, you know, don't hear what we're not saying. We're not saying get rid of your core convictions and get rid of the gospel of and get rid of, of truth not. and get rid of, of that's of course not. I mean, hopefully you know us well enough to know we're not saying there. But to say, look, we're going to disagree on some things, but let's not start with that. Let's start with what we agree on. Let's start with being able to have a unifying and then to say, okay, when we disagree with things, then we can actually develop a love for each other that says when we disagree, we can work to find the truth in that. We can work to find, you know, or we just agree to disagree and we move on and we still love each other, right? right? At the end of the day, what does that look like? And it's not kumbaya and everything's perfect and world peace and all this stuff. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a dream, but we know that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. We know there's going to be all these things going on, but how can we be agents of shalom and not agents of division? That's really what we're talking about here. So, yes. um, you know, okay. So on that note, yeah, there's, there's a book that people are going to go, well, you're going to then re recommend a book that I disagree with. Well, you know, if you do, then read it to my point. And if you, and if you, I don't want you to go into an echo chamber either and only read this, like, because this book is probably a book that, um, you know, the, 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 what is it? Building, not building a bridge. What is Latasha Morrison's book? Uh, be the bridge, be the bridge. So this book would, you know, probably be a different viewpoint. Um, but it's, it's, it's written by Vadi Bakum, who's a, who's a black pastor, um, has a, a very interesting, uh, uh, life. Um, he wrote a book called fault lines and it's, it's about a lot of race issues, um, in, in the U S in, in recent years. It's a fascinating book. Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of right now, so I'm going to admit that I haven't finished it. I've only done this a few times, but I think it's very relevant to the conversation. So I think you'd read these different books, read, be the bridge, you know, listen to interviews by, by these guys and, and understand that there's not just one side to every story. There's actually, you know, a lot of people that within, interestingly, within races, there's different people that disagree with each other within socioeconomic levels. There's people that disagree with each other. Within all these things, there's people that disagree with each other because we're not one, you know, we're, we're all unique children of, that God has created. So we have different backgrounds, different experiences, different things. So, and there is truth, right? It's not this whole idea of my truth, your truth, everyone's truth. Like we have our stories, but there is truth. So how can we seek that truth together? That's what I really want to encourage everyone to be doing, whether it's in the context of the race conversation, whether it's the context of the orphan care conversation, whether it's in the context of, you know, your specific ministry that you're being a part of in different areas of the, of the world, or whether it's just in the relationship with your neighbor, right? How can we do life together well? What do you think, man? Oh, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I've been reading as well recently. I think I had actually mentioned, I, I spent a whole year reading people from other races Mm -hmm. You know, I think naturally I was like, I'm going to read white men because that just whatever that happens. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I made, I made yeah. a point to, to kind of diversify. Um, so, but I have not read body yet. And, uh, I, I know, you know, that, that 
that he's one of those perspectives out there that, that we have to give audience to as well. So that's mm-hmm. good, man. So anyway, someone actually referred it to me. He, somebody gave it to me and I have started reading it and this, it's very interesting, very interesting. And it brings a lot, a lot to the table just as far as the conversation. So if you know me well enough, you know, I'm going to listen to as much as I can and, and, uh, you know, read every so often if it's not on audio. So, um, that's what I do. So anyway, on that note, folks, I, I do. I mean, Brandon and I both, we, we hope and pray that you're taking what you're learning from the show. It's making you think. We hope that it, it does help you to be a better leader. We hope that it helps you to be better in all the different things that you're doing because it causes you to seek how you can help yourself and help others to flourish. And we do hope that you're taking all that you're learning from this show and thing, other things that you're reading and using it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.